On October 30th, 2008, Arpana called her family to catch them up on what was going on in her life. They had a really good conversation and her family was just so incredibly proud of her. They agreed to talk soon, but unfortunately, that would be the last time that Arpana's family would ever speak to her. Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I hope you guys are doing super, super well. So welcome to episode 28. Today we're gonna be talking about what happened to Arpana Janaga. Now, I have never heard of this case before, and I don't know how that's even possible because this is literally one of the most upsetting, disturbing, and just shocking things that I've read about in a long time. Everything that happened from the beginning of the case to the investigation, to the trial, to the aftermath, it's just all truly shocking. Arpana moved to the United States in hopes of having a better life and a better future, but unfortunately, she was met with death instead. There's actually a lot of information to go over for today's video, the amount of court documents, and police reports and witness statements, etc., that we had to go through for this video is insane. So this video is probably going to be pretty long. So with that, let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Arpana Janaga. Arpana Janaga was born on November 3rd, 1984 in Hyderabad, India. Her father, B.C. Janaga, was a professor of computer engineering, and her mother, Nirmala Janaga, was a stay-at-home mom. Arpana had a younger sister named Pavitra, and they were all a very close and loving family. Growing up, Arpana was very creative. She enjoyed singing and writing. She also liked to work out, so she was into gymnastics. Everyone said that she had like a really bubbly personality and that she was really outgoing. She was the type of person to try anything new. Even if she was only gonna try this new thing one time, she just wanted to do it just to be able to say that she did it. I will say that while researching this case, I was very inspired by Arpana. Arpana. The way that she carries herself in her personal life as well as in her professional life is very admirable. She is extremely hardworking, very intelligent, and as we will explore later in this episode, she was just so bold. When she was younger, she competed in an IEEE design hardware competition, and she did so well in this competition that she actually ended up getting a lot of attention from universities and from potential employers. Arpana was really skilled in computer engineering, and she specifically focused on the area in embedded systems and embedded systems is when you use hardware and software for specific functions. From there, Arpana continued to excel and she enrolled in university and was also a singer in a band. So she just did everything. In 2005, when Arpana was 21 years old, she competed in a microchip design competition against thousands of people. In this competition, each person got the same design kit and with her kit, Arpana made a communications jammer. Now, she didn't end up winning the contest but she did place in the top 20 and that got her even more international attention. People in this profession were becoming aware of Arpana's skills and in June of 2005, the New Indian Express wrote an article about Arpana called Young Inventors. In this article, she was actually interviewed and she talked about the love for computers that she had and how she enjoyed using them to innovate things. She also said that her ultimate goal was to later become a professor just like her dad. Now, her dad was actually the one who encouraged her to further her career and he recommended that she enroll in Rutgers University, which is located in New Jersey. Arpana decided to take on this new adventure, so she applied for the master's program at Rutgers in electrical and computer engineering. 
And in December of 2007, she was accepted. She packed up all of her belongings and she moved to New Jersey all by herself, which is so impressive. I mean, moving from India to the US all by yourself must have been so frightening. It's such a culture shock and being away from your friends, family, and from your home is a lot to adjust to. But Arpana was so excited about this new change and about what her future in the US would look like. A few months after moving to New Jersey, Arpana started a job at EMC now known as Dell EMC, as a software quality assurance engineer. Arpona was said to be a bright and hardworking employee. The higher-ups knew that she was going to be a rising star at the company, and after only six months of working there, in October, she was promoted to lead programmer. In 2008, she was actually transferred to a new office, all the way in Redmond, Washington, which is a suburb just outside of Seattle. And this was a pretty big tech town. It's where Microsoft and Nintendo were formed, so there were a lot of opportunities for Arpana's career to grow there. She moved into apartment 8946, which was located on the third floor of the Valley View Apartments in Redmond. She actually really liked these apartments. She would even send photos to her family of the building, and she would also send them photos of when it would be raining outside. And the way that this building is set up, it kind of resembles a motel. All of the apartments were facing outward, the hallways were open, and there were only three floors. I believe each floor only had about five to six units, so it wasn't a super big complex. But it worked for Arpana, and she quickly started making friends with her neighbors, as well as with others in the community. Although people say that this was pretty easy for Arpana, she was just so kind and welcoming that making friends was natural to her. During this time, she bought a Suzuki motorcycle and she began taking classes on how to drive it, which just seems so random, but that's how bold and out there Arpana was. She just loved to try new things. So one day when she saw a woman riding this motorcycle, she said to herself, I'm going to ride one too. She bought her bike and eventually joined the Pacific Northwest Riders, which was a local motorcycle club. So along with being busy at work and the motorcycle club, Arpana also volunteered at the Redmond Fire Department and at an animal shelter in Bellevue. She loved animals and she would often talk to her friends about opening a place for endangered animals at some point in her life. As I mentioned earlier, she also enjoyed working out, so she was taking Taekwondo classes at the time. Everything just seemed to be going well in Arpana's life. She was happy living in Washington, she loved her job, she was making new friends, she still had a close relationship with her family who were back in India. You know, she hadn't gone to visit them in two years, but she would speak to them on the phone basically every single day. On October 30th, 2008, Arpana called her family to catch them up on what was going on in her life. They had a really good conversation and her family was just so incredibly proud of her. They agreed to talk soon, but unfortunately, that would be the last time that Arpana's family would ever speak to her. Now, the next day was Friday, October 31st, Halloween. Arpana got up in the morning and headed over to work. To celebrate the holiday, Arpana and three of her neighbors were going to be hosting a Halloween party at the apartment complex that night. Now, the plan was for them to open their doors and have people filtering in and out of their apartments throughout the night. 
As I mentioned, this apartment complex resembled a motel. So the hallways were outdoors and there were only three floors, which made it easy for people to move around freely. They all had hung up flyers inviting everyone in the complex to join the party and each unit was going to have a different theme. So for example, one of the neighbor's apartment was going to be decorated as Winter Wonderland and Arpana's apartment was going to be a haunted forest. So it was going to be a very fun and just relaxing night. At work, Arpana invited a couple of her co-workers to the party and once her shift ended, she headed over to the store to buy some Halloween decorations. Now, at this time, Arpana was seeing a man named Aaron who was a part of her motorcycle group. They weren't like officially boyfriend and girlfriend. They were just kind of beginning in the dating stages and she had invited him to the Halloween party that night, but he actually had plans with his friends, so he wasn't going to make it. Anyways, Arpana leaves work, she buys the Halloween decorations, and then she heads home. When she gets to her apartment, she brings down all of the supplies and she starts decorating the apartment with these different Halloween decorations and she starts getting ready for the party. Now, since her apartment's theme was a haunted forest, she decided to dress up as Little Red Riding Hood. She put on her costume and then the party began. Over two dozen people started trickling into Arpana's apartment and at around 9 p.m., Arpana and her guests started making their way to the other units. The night seemed to be going well. Everyone was having a good time drinking, eating food, mingling, and just enjoying the spirit of Halloween. Arpana was seen walking around the party with a glass of wine, posing with people for the camera. She just looked like she was having so much fun and just meeting so many new people. The party was full of 20 to 30 year olds and they ranged from her neighbors to friends of her neighbors to friends of Arpana. They had set up these tables in the hallways with drinks and food, so it was just a really great party. However, there was an incident. A couple of people saw Arpana getting into an argument with a man at the party. Apparently, this argument was over race-related comments that this man had made to Arpana. We're not sure exactly what he said, but Arpana did not want to let this man ruin her night. So she ended the conversation with him and then continued to enjoy herself. At around midnight, Arpana had everyone come back to her apartment unit to eat some pizza. Then after eating some food, everyone made their way to the first floor of the building and that's pretty much where the rest of the party continued. Just before 3 a.m., things finally started to slow down. You know, there was only like a small group of people left that included Arpana and one of her friends named Jessica who also lived in the building. Now, Jessica did an interview and she said that she remembers Arpana telling her that she has no idea how lucky she is to be a woman living in the United States and that things were really hard for her growing up in India. Jessica tried to tell her that, you know, things weren't always that easy in the U.S. And Arpana began to cry and said, you have no idea. Right after this, and maybe because she was emotional from the conversation, Arpana left the apartment and returned to her apartment on the third floor alone at 3 a.m. But despite her leaving the party alone, for the next hour, her next door neighbors heard what they thought sounded like consensual sex happening in her apartment. They said it sounded like muffled moaning. The next morning at 8 a.m., Arpana's neighbor, Kyle, who shared a wall with her, was woken up by a growling sound that lasted for around 20 seconds and was ended by a thud sound coming from Arpana's apartment. Kyle said the sound sounded like either sex or someone vomiting, and the thud sounded like someone falling out of the bed. He also heard footsteps. After that, he heard her water running for about an hour. Now, moving over to Arpana's family, they woke up on Saturday morning and they called her to check in on her. However, 
they received no response. They sent her a text message, but again, no response. They did think that this was odd, but they figured that maybe she was just busy and that she would call them soon. However, the next day on Sunday, Arpana was still MIA. Her family kept trying to get in contact with her, but they just couldn't. This is when they really started to worry because Arpana would never go this MIA. She would usually answer the phone, so the fact that it had been two days without any communication was definitely alarming. On Monday, November 3rd, Arpana didn't show up to work. Arpana's boss, named Mohammed, tried calling Arpana's phone to see where she was, but there was no answer. Again, this was very odd. She would never just miss work. So along with Arpana's family, her coworkers were now also starting to get concerned. Her family was just so worried about her that they reached out to a man named Jay, who was a former student of Arpana's father, who was now living in the same area as her. So the family called him and asked him if he could go to her apartment to check in on her and just make sure that everything was okay. Jay agreed and he arrived to the apartments at 9 a.m. Now, while he was walking around, you know, making his way to Arpana's unit, he came across one of her next door neighbors named Cameron. Now, Jay asked Cameron if he knew Arpana and knew which unit she lived in. Cameron said yes, and he took Jay to her apartment. The two of them knocked on the door, but shockingly, the door just swung open. Both of them say that the door frame and the lock had been broken, and when they entered the unit, there were clear signs of a struggle. They went into Arpana's bedroom, and that's when they saw that she was lying face down on the floor, slightly covered with a sheet, naked and covered in blood. Jay asked Cameron if he knew CPR and if he wanted to try, and Cameron said that he just didn't want to touch her body. So Jay immediately called 911 and dispatchers told the two of them to leave the apartment unit, but to just wait outside for investigators to arrive. On the call, Jay is completely frantic and Cameron sounds a little bit more calm in comparison, but like I've said, people react differently to situations like this. But something that I found interesting about this call is that the dispatcher is talking to Cameron and they ask him, was she breathing? Did you check for a pulse? And Cameron said, no, I didn't want to touch it. He didn't say I didn't want to touch her. He said it. So it's just really interesting language to use. Now, after this, police arrived at the apartment shortly after the call and right away, police knew that this was a homicide. They started taking statements from neighbors while they waited for crime scene investigators to arrive, who eventually did at around 1 p.m. CSI took photos, collected DNA, fingerprints, and any other evidence found at the scene. Now, something that CSI and detectives noticed is that the entire apartment had an overwhelming smell, the smell of bleach. It was as if someone had drenched the apartment with this chemical in an attempt to clean up. Not only did the killer try to clean up with the bleach, they also put Arbana's comforter in her tub. It was soaking in water and in bleach, but it still had blood on it. Now, the rest of her sheets were also missing from her bed, and detectives also found Arpana's tampon, which she presumably had in at the time of the attack and was now on the floor of her bedroom. There were also several items that had been burned, including a green blanket, Arpana's red cape from her Halloween costume, some other pieces of her costume, a black sheet, and a piece of the carpet. 
It was believed that Arpana's door had been kicked in because both her doorknob and her deadbolt lock had been broken out of the door frame. So it was clear that she hadn't just let her attacker inside. There was also bleach on the furniture and it was a really messy cleanup job because it had been on the living room coffee table and then dripped onto the carpet, which then stained it. So it really seems like whoever did this was just trying to get rid of evidence in a very rushed job. Based on the bleach droplets, investigators speculated that the use of bleach started in the living room and then moved into the bedroom. Motor oil was also dumped all around the apartment. Mainly, it was in the bedroom on and around Arpana's body. And it was also determined that Arpana's motorcycle was missing. I mean, this was just all so shocking to the police and to everyone in this building. How did this happen? Why did this happen? And who did this to Arpana? That same day on November 3rd, a Redmond police spokesman named Jim Bove spoke out about the case and said, quote, there were signs of trauma in the apartment. We have booked it as a case of suspicious death. After this, Arpana's body was taken to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy to be conducted. And this confirmed that Arpana had been raped. But unfortunately, the ME wasn't able to get any DNA from the rape kit. That means the attacker most likely wore a condom. Before her death, she had several blunt force traumas to her head. Several of her teeth had been broken. Arpana had bruises on her stomach, thighs, and on her wrists. Her own underwear had been used as a gag in her mouth, and the attacker had put duct tape over her mouth. It's just all so terrible. The cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation caused by strangulation, which was done with a boot lace. Now, they weren't able to establish an exact time of death, but they knew that it was in the early morning hours of Saturday, November 1st, sometime between 3.30 in the morning and 8 a.m. After she died, her hands had been stained blue by a highly acidic cleaning liquid that was determined to be toilet cleaner. Now, whoever did this probably used this to try to destroy any DNA evidence underneath her nails or on her hands from potentially fighting back. Her body also had bleach on it and it had motor oil on it from the waist down. She had some small burn marks on her body, so it appeared that the murderer had attempted to light her body on fire after her death but they weren't able to because motor oil isn't flammable. So police were on the lookout for Arpana's motorcycle, but they actually found it quickly at a repair shop and it turned out that Arpana had brought it there herself days before her murder. On November 5th, investigators looked into the apartment building's dumpster and they found a plastic bag that had a bottle of Castrol motorcycle oil inside of it. Also in the bag was a rest of Arpana's Halloween costume, a bloodstained bathrobe, and Arpana's bed sheets. So her killer clearly went to extreme lengths to make sure that he wouldn't get caught and that all of the evidence was gone. So everything from Arpana's apartments and the dumpster items were sent to the Washington State Crime Lab. But because of the number of items, the lab estimated that it was going to take weeks or months to test everything. So in the meantime, detectives continued with the investigation and determined that the murderer had taken Arpana's ID, her Blackberry phone, and her digital camera, which confused a lot of people. You know, was Arpana's death all because someone wanted to rob her of these items? You know, over a phone and a camera? That just seems very extreme. So was the motive actually robbery or did the killer take these items because something was on the phone or the camera that could be linked back to them? Investigators did try to look at her phone records from her service provider, but that didn't really give them any new clues and everything just seemed consistent with their timeline. So detectives started interviewing everyone that was at the Halloween party and the guests all seemed to believe that the man Arpana had been seen arguing with needed 
needed to be looked into i mean what are the odds that she got into a fight with this guy at the party and then a few hours later she was dead so it definitely seems suspicious but investigators say that they didn't think that the argument would have led to a crime as brutal and as violent as this now party goers also mentioned this guy named neil who didn't live in the building but was there the night of the party now everyone says that they found him just like really off-putting in an annoying way and what was weird was that neil had walked home from the party that night which would have been like a multiple hour long walk so his behavior that night was just a little bit weird and detectives did look into him but he had an alibi because he was seen walking home many miles away from the party on a convenience store camera and his family also confirmed that he did return home and that he stayed home all night so in the end neil was cleared the next door neighbors cameron the one who found her body and kyle the one who heard the growling sounds told investigators about what they experienced that night i also find it interesting that neighbors both heard sounds from her apartment but they didn't hear the door getting broken down you know they were able to hear her growling and they were able to hear the water running but I'm just so confused as how they didn't hear someone like literally break a door down, like break the lock, break the frame, break the deadbolt. It's just really odd. Also, they didn't hear her put up a fight or yell, ask for help, nothing. Now, we already know what Kyle heard the morning of the murder. So let's move over to Cameron. Witnesses state that Cameron had shown up to the party later in the night because he was at another party earlier. And they also said that he was pretty rowdy that night. He had a bunch of the party guests come to his apartment to take vodka shots and people said that he was pretty drunk. Police interviewed him about four times and they also got a warrant to check his apartment and his car. Now, I think the reason they did this was because he was Arpana's neighbor. You know, he was at the party and he was the one who discovered her body. So of course, police wanted to look into him a little bit more. When questioned, he told police that he had fallen asleep on his couch the night of the party and he was woken up to sex sounds coming from Arpana's apartment at around 3 a.m. And he knows that this happened at around 3 o'clock in the morning because at this time, he also texted his ex saying, yo. Now, he also said that he called Arpana at 10 a.m. the next morning on Saturday, but that was it. However, investigators knew that this was a lie. They had already looked at Arpana's phone records at the time, so they already knew that Cameron had called her more than once. So why was he saying that he only called her one time at 10 a.m.? They asked him if they could look at his phone and Cameron just handed it over. They pulled up his call log and they were like, you called Arpana once at 2.56 in the morning and then once at 3.02 in the morning. Cameron said, oh crap, and then just said that he couldn't remember why he called Arpana. He was also asked if he went to Arpana's apartment after making those phone calls and he said, I don't think so. Now, he just seemed not very confident in his answer, especially after he was caught slipping once already about the calls. So the day after the Halloween party on Saturday, Cameron said that he woke up at around 10 a.m. However, investigators found printed out maps for pawn shops in his car and the timestamp for when these maps were printed out was 10 a.m. So how did he wake up at 10 a.m. if these maps were printed at 10 a.m.? Also, why was he looking to go to a pawn shop? It's just a bit odd since Arpana's camera and her phone were missing. 
which are items that you would take to a pawn shop. So after finding those maps, detectives started to check online to see if Arpana's phone and her camera would be posted on, you know, any online website, but they actually never went to visit any of the pawn shops on Cameron's list or interviewed any of the employees if they saw Cameron or if he tried to sell them anything, which I feel like that could have been like a huge piece of evidence in this case. You know, if he was looking for pawn shops and maybe he was the one that took her phone and her camera, they could have gone to the pawn shop and asked, did you just get a Blackberry or did you get a camera? But it's crazy that they didn't look into it more. Now, going back to Cameron's timeline, Cameron said that after he woke up, he went to Denny's and had breakfast. After that, he actually drove two hours to the Canadian border, but he wasn't let through because he didn't have a passport with him. When asked about it, he just said that he was in the mood to explore and that taking long drives was normal for him. However, Canadian officials said that he tried to, quote, blow through the border gates. Investigators talked to his friends and family, and they all confirmed that Cameron would regularly go on aimless long drives. But still, why did he have to go to Canada that specific day? So later that day, he says that he went to a party and witnesses there said that he arrived with the limp and that he also got into a fight with someone at the party. When asked about his limp, he said that he got it from the fight. But witnesses say that he already arrived there with the limp. So how is it possible that he arrived there with the limp, but then is blaming it on a fight that happened during the party? Now, the first interview that detectives did on Cameron, he was able to leave the interview without having to give them his phone. And apparently between that interview and the next one that they did, detectives noticed that a lot of stuff had been deleted off of Cameron's phone. However, police are able to get records for that kind of stuff, so it's not clear if he actually deleted anything incriminating to this case or if he just deleted like random stuff off his phone. Now, after speaking to Cameron, detectives continued with the investigation and they reached out to other witnesses. One neighbor named Jeffrey told investigators that he was coming home from work at 3 a.m. the night of the murder, and he said that he saw a man between 5'11 and 6'3 with olive skin, face double that was wearing an orange fleece jacket, standing in Arpana's doorway at 3 a.m., talking to someone inside the apartment. But as we know, Arpana's door was broken down, so it's hard to know if those two are connected. Also, this neighbor must have known people who lived in the building, so it's odd to me that they couldn't tell who this man was. Now, what's weird about this description is that Cameron actually matches the description of this man. So from there, people felt like he was the prime suspect. I mean, he lived next door. He was at the party. He found her body. His description matches the man seen talking to Arpana. It just all seemed like it led back to him. Now, again, I just want to emphasize that this neighbor didn't identify Cameron as the olive skin man. And, you know, they were neighbors. So I feel like he would have known if that was exactly Cameron. But this witness just says, like, I can't tell you exactly who this guy is. I can just tell you that he had olive skin he had face double, etc. Now, even though people felt like Cameron was responsible for this, or at least just suspicious, detectives needed to follow every and all leads before making any arrest. So they went back to the drawing board and it was discovered that Arpana or someone else was up and using her computer at 3.29 in the morning. 
In January 2009, the investigation still hadn't turned up any suspects, but investigators still said that they were optimistic because they were still waiting on the labs to come back with the DNA. Lieutenant Doug Shepard told the media that it was still very early in their investigation and that this case was still the number one priority of the police division. Investigators were kind of stumped as to what the motive was for this case. Lieutenant Shepard said that Arpana did not make any enemies, just friends, and that she had a lot of friends. You know, they were also shocked at the fact that this murder even happened. One detective said, quote, We're a safe community. This sort of thing doesn't happen in Redmond. We have a brutal murder with no suspect. This one is not going away. We are not going to put this to bed. I mean, everyone just wanted to find the person or persons who did this to Arpana. There were even a couple of memorials held in Bellevue and in India to honor her. Hundreds of people showed up to these memorials and showed support to her family. The United States Hindu Alliance called for the FBI to join in on the investigation because this was actually the fifth case in 2008 of a person from India being murdered in the US. And it just seemed like maybe this could be a hate crime. So they reached out to the FBI, but the FBI did not end up joining the investigation. In October of 2010, two years after Arpana's murder, a press conference was held and investigators announced that they had finally made an arrest. And when I read that, I thought that they were going to arrest Cameron, but I was wrong. The person that they arrested was 27-year-old Emmanuel Demelvin Fair, who actually went by the name Anthony Parker. So how did police zero in on Fair? Well, according to Detective Coates, he said that he was looking at photos from the Halloween party and that's when he noticed Fair, who was dressed as a construction worker, in the background of the photos. Now, what stood out to him is that Fair was, quote, the only African-American male at the party and appeared to be an outsider. Detective Coates sees Fair in the background of these photos, and he starts sending this photo out to other police stations in the area to see if other police officers know who this guy is. Maybe he already has a record. Maybe he's been arrested for something. And he actually gets a response back. One police station says that they know exactly who this guy is and that they they actually had a warrant out for his arrest. It turns out that Emmanuel Fair had a criminal record. Now, Fair had been arrested about a dozen times before, and he also had known gang affiliations. When he was 16 years old, he was arrested for robbing another teenager. And when he was 17, he fired a gun and shot the wall in his foster home. The other charges that he had included second-degree robbery, unlawful firearm possession, and drug possession. Now, those charges weren't really what caught Detective Coates' attention. It was actually a rape charge that Fair had. So, let's talk about this. In 2004, Fair was charged for raping a minor after she called 911 to report what had happened. According to the 15-year-old victim, he had raped her multiple times between 2003 and 2004. And the last time that he raped her, before she reported it, he had raped her at gunpoint after he choked her and slapped her and threatened to kill her. When Fair was told that they were taking his DNA to test against the rape kit, he admitted to at least statutory rape, but he said that it was consensual, which legally it wasn't. He also made a deal and pled guilty to third-degree rape instead of having to go to trial for second-degree rape. 
Now, the max sentence for second degree rape is 20 years, while third degree is only a max of five years. So this deal allowed him to get less time in prison. His plea deal was also an Alford plea, which means that he knows that the state has enough to convict him as guilty, but he still gets to claim that he's innocent. Now, the prosecutors in this case did say that the victim didn't want to testify. So I guess that's why they allowed this deal to happen, because if there was no trial, the victim wouldn't have to testify and get further traumatized. Also, Fair did admit to being guilty of statutory rape, so I don't get how he's allowed to say that he's innocent. After this, Fair only ended up getting four years. And then he only ended up having to serve a little more than two years of the sentence because he was considered a level one offender, which are supposed to be the least likely to reoffend. Also, I just want to point out that his victim to this day stands by her story of being violently assaulted by Fair. Now, as for why there was a warrant out for Fair's arrest at the time that Arpano was murdered, it's because he had actually broken his probation and failed to update his sex offender registration for the second time. So they were trying to send him back to jail. At the time of his arrest for the case, he had actually already been in jail for a year and he wasn't supposed to be released for this until 2012. So I know you're probably wondering, how did Arpana and Fair even end up being at the same place at the same time? Well, this is because after he was released in 2006, Fair was in a way homeless. He was kind of couch surfing and just kind of staying at different people's houses, trying to figure out where to go next. And the week of Arpana's murder, he had nowhere to stay. So he decided to reach out to a friend named Leslie Pott. Now, Leslie lived in the same building as Arpana and she let Fair come to her apartment and stay on her couch. So that is how Fair ended up being in the same building as Arpana. And moving over to Leslie, she was actually one of the people who hosted a party that night on Halloween. So Leslie and Fair were newer friends who had met on MySpace and they bonded over their love of the same music. When Leslie was originally questioned by the police back in November of 2008, she actually lied to them and said that she was home alone the night of the murder and that she was also home alone on November 3rd, even though Fair was literally in her apartment that day. After that, she said that she helped him leave undetected by police. Later, when Fair didn't answer the police's phone calls, Leslie told police that he was was just having troubles with his phone. Leslie also said in an interview that she actually helped Fair sneak out because she knew about the warrant for his arrest, but she didn't know what it was actually for. Which either way, even if she didn't know what this warrant was for, like why are you still helping him like run away and like hide from police? I mean, it's not like they were even best friends, so I don't know why she was helping him so much. Now, in the investigation, it was also discovered that Fair had been to the Halloween parties that night and that he had spent a lot of time with Cameron, which if you remember, he's the one that found her body. Now, according to both of them, they only met at the party and had spent about 30 minutes together and then never saw each other again. During that 30 minutes, they said that they were talking about music. Fair had gone with Cameron to go to his car so that they could apparently listen to a CD together. They stayed in Cameron's car for at least 20 minutes just listening to music. Now, Fair was actually interviewed by police on November 21st, 2008. And at the time, he told police that he was at the parties and that he had also been in Arpana's apartment. He said that he spoke to her and that she showed him some photos on her bedroom computer. And then they didn't really talk again the rest of the night. He ate some pizza in her apartment and he also used her bathroom. So Fair had become a suspect because of his record, 
But at the time, investigators didn't have enough evidence to actually tie him to Arpina's murder until they got back all the DNA results. Prosecutors confirmed to the public that Fair's DNA was found at the crime scene and on Arpana, including on the duct tape on her mouth, on Arpana's neck, and mixed in with the blood that was on her robe found in the dumpster. Fair was interviewed multiple times and there were some inconsistencies in his story. He said that he had gone back to Leslie's apartment at 1 a.m. and then went to sleep until 10 a.m. on Saturday. However, his phone records were looked into and he made over 20 calls between 2 and 5 a.m. to three different women, including to Leslie. And if they were both staying at her apartment, why would he need to call her? It also proved that he wasn't asleep during those hours. He also called a sex worker that night who said she didn't go and meet him, but that's all she said. So Leslie had gone to sleep already around midnight and she said that she didn't hear Fair come in. So she has no way to confirm his alibi because she didn't see him until the morning. And according to court documents, Leslie also said that in the morning, she saw an empty condom wrapper on the kitchen table, which hadn't been there the night before. So at the time, she just assumed that this was Fair's condom and that he had sex with someone that night. That part was really crazy to me and I didn't really see people talk about it in other sources other than the court documents. Now, Fair also said that he went to the dumpster on November 1st after cleaning up Leslie's apartment. And again, if you guys remember, there was a lot of evidence from the murder found in the dumpster. Now, let's talk about all the DNA that was found because it wasn't just Fair's. And if that's at all confusing, just to explain how DNA works, there's a lot of touch DNA on everyone and on everything. So for example, if you touch someone and then you touch something in your bedroom, there's a likely chance that that person's DNA would end up in your bedroom, even if they had never even been in that room their entire life. So I'm sure all over Arpana's apartment was going to be a bunch of touch DNA and just DNA from everyone who was at the party, basically all over everything. So this was just a really hard case because of all of this DNA that was found everywhere. I mean, just imagine all the people that were filtering in and out of Arpana's apartment that night. Like, must have been insane. In fact, there was DNA found from three unidentified males on Arpana's tampon string, but it didn't match the DNA of anyone who had given their DNA samples in this case. Now, prosecutors did add that the tampon had been squashed into the carpet of the apartment. So they're like, the DNA could have come from the carpet. The DNA could have come from the person who made the tampon. I mean, as I mentioned, there was just DNA all over the place. So just because, you know, these three unidentified males DNA was found on the tampon didn't mean that they had actually like touched it. Now the bootlace had been soaked in motor oil and the only person's DNA that was found on it was another Valley View resident named Josiah and he actually wasn't even at the party that night and he had a solid alibi. The only DNA found on Arpana's body was found on her neck but that DNA was trace DNA meaning it was really small. Considering how her body was covered in bleach, it does seem significant that that was the only DNA that they were able to find. You know, maybe the bleach did get rid of a lot of DNA that could have been helpful to, you know, track down the killer. Now, let's talk about the tape that was found on Arpana's mouth. It had strands of her hair on it, as well as the small elastic that lace underwear has, as well as a lot of Fair's DNA, meaning that it couldn't be transfer DNA, and he really did touch this piece of tape. Investigators also believe that Arbana was wearing her robe when she was attacked. So that's why the DNA that was actually mixed into her blood on the robe is such a big focus. You know, it's not like someone cut themselves and that's how the blood ended up on the robe. Like Arbana's blood and Fair's DNA were mixed in together. Fair's DNA was also found on some toilet paper, but that was more assumed to be from him just being at the party. 
Now, going back to Cameron, the neighbor, his DNA was on the motor oil can and it was the amount of DNA that meant that Cameron touched it or sneezed on it. When Cameron was asked about it, he couldn't explain why his DNA was on it. You know, he never said, oh, I moved the can when I went to go get paper towels during the party or just kind of give an explanation as to why his DNA would be on there. It was also noted by the forensic DNA analysts in this case that the DNA pointed to Fair committing the crime and the DNA evidence against Cameron showed that he might have been a part of the cleanup. So she did suggest that maybe Cameron heard what was happening and went over. But did he go over to help Fair clean up the crime scene? I mean, they had just met that night, so it's not like they were like best friends. So if he did just happen to run in and see Fair committing this crime, why would he willingly help him cover up the scene? If he had been threatened, you know, maybe Fair was like, help me clean up or I'll kill you. Why wouldn't he just tell the police that now? Or what a lot of people think is that maybe Cameron and Fair did this together. Maybe Fair was the one who killed her and Cameron was in charge of the cleanup. So that is pretty much how Fair was connected to the case. You know, he didn't know Arpana. He had just met her that night, but his DNA was found pretty much everywhere. So because of this, Fair had been arrested and charged with first degree murder and rape, and he was transferred to King County Jail to await his trial. Because remember, he was already in jail at this point because of his probation violation. And what prosecutors said is that they believe that Fair had forced Arpana's door open and then attacked and killed her. Now, first degree murder is only a 35 to 45 year sentence, but prosecutors said that they would be going after a life sentence, which they were allowed to ask for because of the level of brutality in the case. Now, the reason Cameron wasn't arrested, which a lot of people were wondering about, is because detectives just didn't have enough evidence to convict him. You know, his DNA was on the motor oil, but prosecutors knew that any attorney would be able to say, okay, it was, but he was her neighbor and her friend, and he had been to her apartment multiple times. So maybe one day he just accidentally left his DNA on there. And Fair's DNA is on things that are actually tied to the crime. So it just seemed like Fair was the one who had actually done this. And that's why Cameron was never arrested or charged. So at the arraignment, Fair entered a plea of not guilty and his bond was set to $5 million. Fair ended up firing his first public defender and he got a new one. In pretrial motions filed by Fair's defense attorney, he wrote that Fair had been treated differently than other white suspects, including during interviews because he was black. They claimed that he was treated negatively when other suspects who had more of a motive were treated with kid gloves. Also in this motion, the defense attorney called into question True Allel's legitimacy. Now, who is True Allel? Well, they have forensic technology that is commonly used, but at the time it was pretty new, and this was the first case in Washington that was using True Allel to find DNA matches. But it had been used in cases before in the US, and now it's like very commonly used. But again, at the time it was just very new. Now, how Truelel is able to identify smaller traces of DNA, as well as give more certainty on larger DNA samples, and can give a match down to the septillion. Now, a septillion has 24 zeros, so it's a very accurate program. Fair's lawyer was arguing that it wasn't clear if Truelel was reliable, and argued that these type of things needed to be done by humans, not computers. But the human-run lab had only used Truelel for the DNA found on Arpana's neck. The lab 
found that the amount of DNA on the duct tape could only come from Fair actually touching it himself and not from touch DNA or any other potential cross-contamination. The forensic DNA analyst who examined this case said that the DNA on the tape wasn't something that could be overlooked as it was directly tied to the murder. But because the attorneys were trying to argue True Allow's legitimacy, this held up the trial for years because True Allow's parent company, Cybergenetic CEO Dr. Mark Perlin, refused to give over the source code that ran the program. Now, his reason for this was so that it wouldn't be stolen by other companies. Also, because of this case, a bunch of other defense attorneys decided to also question Churalel, and the CEO actually had to go to court to keep his algorithm a secret as to not allow competitors to have his code. And in the end, he did end up winning in court. I know this is all very confusing, but it is just so relevant to the case, and just everything that happened with Churalel and just verifying that their DNA is reliable just took so many years. And and after all of that was finally cleared up, his trial finally started on February 14th, 2017, almost seven years after his arrest, which is crazy. That must have been so frustrating for Arpana's family. You know, they probably were waiting and waiting every single day to finally go to court and get justice for their daughter, but they literally had to wait seven years. Now, going back to Cameron, he was never charged with anything to do with Arpana's death, but he actually was a part of the trial and Fair's defense team called him to give statements and they hoped that his statements would kind of win over the jury. They were hoping that his statements would kind of make the jury think that Cameron was the one who did this, not Fair. Now, one of the women that Fair called that night testified that she received three phone calls from him at around 4.45 a.m. The calls went to voicemail and she said that the voicemails didn't have any talking on them and it kind of just sounded like constant movement. So some people assume that these calls could have been like but dials, you know, like maybe Fair was sleeping and his phone just was in his pocket and accidentally dialed these people. He was partying and stuff, so maybe it just accidentally happened. The defense team really tried to make it seem like Cameron was the one that did this, and they actually had one female neighbor testify saying that Cameron liked to wrestle, and one time when they wrestled, she was pinned to the ground and he tried to kiss her, even though she made it clear that she didn't want to kiss him. At the trial, prosecutor said that Cameron might have been in a accomplice in this case, but that any evidence pointing to him does not exonerate Fair, and that Cameron should be characterized as an uncharged accomplice. But the defense attorney brought up all the other DNA that was found in Arpana's apartment, including DNA from neighbors who weren't even at the party. Again, that would be touch DNA. But as I said before, the lab said that Fair's duct tape DNA was enough that meant he actually touched it, and the same with Cameron and the motor oil. And the robe DNA also wasn't touch DNA, and it was real DNA. It also came up at the trial that Fair cut his lip while at Arpana's party, and witnesses did confirm this. So his attorneys tried to argue that it meant that he would have DNA in her bathroom because he cleaned himself up after cutting his lip. His attorneys also said that the investigators did a poor job in this case, and they even said that they had tried to use a psychic to try to help them solve the case. They claimed that the items being found in the dumpster two days after the discovery of Arpana meant that someone could have tampered with the evidence. And one juror actually mentioned this as well. You know, there was no security guarding the dumpster, so anybody could have gone in, tampered with anything, and 
put things in there without anybody noticing. Going back to the trial, Fair's defense attorneys also argued that this supposed accomplice caused reasonable doubt. At the trial, Fair didn't actually take the stand, and the neighbor who saw someone outside of Arpin's apartment at 3 a.m. did testify, but they couldn't confirm that this person was Cameron, and they were never able to actually identify who it was. At the trial, Cameron was the last person to take the stand. A member of the jury said that they were frustrated by Cameron because there was a lot that he wasn't allowed to answer, but they said that he couldn't remember the name of the apartment building, which is so weird because he literally used to live there, so how does he not remember the name? The jury member also said that if he was innocent, they didn't know why he didn't try to be more open. The trial lasted two months and it actually resulted in a hung jury. They had voted 9-3 in favor of not guilty and they were sent back to deliberate more. One jury member recalled believing completely that Fair was guilty based on all the evidence. However, other jurors felt that there just wasn't enough evidence to prove that Fair had done this. But he said not enough wasn't the question for him though. The DNA was in places it shouldn't have been and it was as simple as that for him. So the jury came back with six to six and five of the jurors did believe that Cameron was involved. So because of that, there was a mistrial. The prosecutors immediately decided to have a retrial and this new trial was set for that September. But on September 11th, 2017, just days before the trial was about to begin, it was put on hold until it could get a discretionary review by the Court of Appeals. So now there was a legal battle going on over the prosecutor's argument that Fair didn't necessarily work alone. They planned to bring this up at the new trial and Fair's attorney said that it wasn't a valid argument when that person wasn't on trial too. You know, they said that it was unconstitutional to charge Fair for potentially two people's crimes and that the state would need to charge this other person either in the same or separate trials. They just had to do it if they were going to argue that the murder happened that way. So they were basically saying like, okay, if you're going to charge Fair with the murder of Arpana and claim that maybe he had an accomplice, you also need to charge that accomplice. You can't just like let Fair go down for this and let his accomplice go free. So that's kind of like what the defense attorneys were trying to argue. Now, they also argued that investigators had originally believed Cameron was the one who was responsible, and it turned out that investigators wrote probable cause paperwork to even arrest him. The attorneys also noted that in interviews with Cameron, he had told investigators that he recently stopped taking his psychiatric medication and that investigators didn't ask a follow-up question about what the medication was or what it was for. His lawyers also said that Cameron had told investigators, quote, Arpana looked really good. I hadn't seen her for months. I had never thought about her like that. They also said that he was sexually attracted to Arpana and that he was hoping that they would hook up. So at the end of all of this, the judge ruled that Cameron couldn't be called an uncharged accomplice if he wasn't going to be charged. And again, in this trial, they weren't allowed to mention Fair's criminal history, including the rape conviction. So Fair's second trial started in spring of 2019, and his attorneys tried to argue that the neighbor, Cameron, was solely responsible for this. At the second trial, Cameron took the stand again, and this time, instead of looking at his lawyer for each question he took, he just looked down. The jurors said that they just found this really weird. On January 6, 2019, the jury began their deliberation. At first, the jury was split evenly three ways between innocent, guilty, and undecided. And then on June 11th, just a few days after they came to a unanimous decision, they found Fair 
not guilty. A jury member later told the media that the evidence against Cameron created enough reasonable doubt that they just couldn't find fair guilty for this. Now, how guilty verdicts work is if you think that there is a 99% chance that the person did it, but you have that 1% doubt, you can't find them guilty because you literally have to be 100% sure. So because there could have been a chance that Cameron had killed Arpana, the jury just couldn't find fair 100% guilty. Now, the juror also said that he didn't think that Fair was completely innocent, but that they did have reasonable doubt. And again, it all just went back to the neighbor, Cameron. The juror said, quote, no one could eliminate him as the killer. So again, just to recap, they're not saying that Fair is innocent, that he didn't do this and that he was wrongfully convicted, etc. They're just saying that maybe he didn't act alone and that there is a chance that Cameron also could have done this. Now, hours after the verdict, Fair was released. Now, as for what the prosecutors think about this verdict, they think that the jury found Fair not guilty because there really wasn't a motive and they just didn't trust the DNA. DNA is much more accurate, but a jury actually has a hard time trusting it. Juries actually find witness testimony more trustworthy, but a lot of people feel like that's weird because I feel like witness statements sometimes are just so unreliable against actual DNA evidence. Fair's defense attorney came out after the verdict and said, quote, after nine years of fighting, Fair has the freedom he deserves. Fair has steadfastly maintained his innocence throughout this case, and he, his family, and friends are greatly relieved that justice was served by his acquittal. His attorney, Benjamin, said that the evidence found during the investigation pointed to one of Arpana's neighbors as a killer, which again is Cameron. He said, quote, the man was the last person to call her the night she was killed. He tried to destroy evidence of the calls and he attempted to go to Canada after the homicide, but was turned away. Fair told the Seattle Times, I always knew I was going to get out. I just didn't think it would take as long as it took. So I know that was a lot. Like I said at the beginning of the video, this just has so much information and just so much like court documents to read through and just lawyer statements and everything. So this is just really crazy. The fact that Fair was literally found not guilty and acquitted for this is just shocking. And how Cameron just was never arrested for this either. It just doesn't make any sense. Like how did both of their DNAs end up in this apartment? How did Fair's DNA end up on the duct tape? There's just so many questions that people still have, but Fair is free, he's out there, and so is Cameron. Now, while a lot of people believe that Fair and Cameron are most likely the people that did this, there are some people that feel like this could have been done by just someone completely random, someone that wasn't Arpana's neighbor or someone that wasn't at the building the night of the party. It could have been someone that was just driving by and saw that there was a party going on and that everyone had the apartment doors open and everyone was like just going in and out of everyone's rooms. Maybe they just saw this as like a prime opportunity to just like sneak their way in on Halloween night in a costume and commit a murder. So let's talk about this man named Mark O'Leary. Now, Mark is a convicted serial rapist and the inspiration for the Netflix series Unbelievable, and he's considered a suspect in Arpana's case. Now, there's just a lot of similarities between Arpana's murder and his other attacks, including using a shoelace, which he used on his victims, and he would also take their ID card, their phone, and their camera. Which again, as we know, Arpana's ID, phone, and camera were missing from her apartment, and she was also strangled with a bootlace. Now, Mark had also committed crimes in the area where Arpana lived because it was also where he had lived for a period of time. 
Police were able to convict him for five rapes because of photos they found of the victims, but they believe that he completed more attacks because he had an encrypted file on his computer that has 75 gigabytes that investigators have never been able to open. So even though Mark O'Leary was never convicted of murder, investigators think that this file might prove he's responsible for a lot more assaults and potential murders, including Arpana's. So yeah, some people do believe that maybe Mark was responsible for this, but again, at the end of the day, I feel like people just always keep circling back to Fair and to Cameron. So now let's go back to Fair and what happened after he was released from jail. Well, he actually decided to sue the city of Redmond, the police department of Redmond, the lead detective, and other officers for $22 million in damages for maltreatment and negligence, which caused him emotional distress. He was in a correctional facility for nearly nine years for a crime which he was found not guilty for. So he states that he has been struggling to reconstruct his life and just get back to normal. His lawyer said that all of this had affected his personal life, his livelihood, and just his relationships with people. Now, Fair says that he was hesitant to launch this lawsuit because Arpana's family has still not received justice. He said, quote, there's no justice for this case, no resolution for her. But in the end, he decided to go through with the lawsuit. Now, the lawsuit states that he was targeted because of his skin color, and Fair says that investigators didn't have probable cause to arrest him. His lawsuit claims that investigators cherry-picked evidence to kind of just fit their own theory. According to this lawsuit, Cameron's DNA was also on part of the carpet that was wet, and the motor oil can, as we know. They also alleged that a lighter was found in Cameron's apartment with the sticky substance on it, but that investigators never collected it. And if you guys remember, there was a bunch of oil in the apartment and burn marks on her body, so... You know, there was a lighter found in Cameron's room. It's just a little bit suspicious. Fair also alleged that Cameron was allowed to have the camera turned off during parts of his interview with police, but that he wasn't allowed to. You know, the camera had to be on, so he just feels like he was just treated so differently. The lawsuit also says that the lead detective on the case, Brian Coates, had never handled a complex homicide before. Now, since this happened, Brian Coates has become captain of the police department, but Fair just feels like he doesn't really know what he's doing. In 2021, a podcast series called Suspect, hosted by journalists Matthew Scher and Eric Benson, was created and it investigates Arpana's case as well as dives deep into Fair's trial. On the Suspect podcast, they talk about a quote that Brian had said at the start of the investigation, and it was regarding whether or not Fair's previous criminal history had anything to do with them zeroing in on him and finding him to be the suspect. Brian had said, quote, if you've done it before, you'll do it again. So Fair and his attorneys just truly feel that he was targeted right away because of his record. You know, the fact that Detective Brian said that makes it seem like, oh, well, he's raped before, he's robbed before, then he probably did it again, instead of actually trying to analyze if he had actually done this. The lawsuit also says that they didn't change their gloves while collecting evidence due to improper training, but police claim that this isn't accurate and this specific part of the lawsuit was actually dismissed. The lawsuit also states that DNA from another resident at Arpana's apartment complex at the time was, quote, found on the shoelace believed to have strangled Janaga. She had been part of a local motorcycle group, and police records show that two members of the group had a history of sexual crimes, and one had been sexually harassing her, end quote. 
Fair's lawsuit against some specific members of the Redmond police have been dismissed, as well as a lawsuit that Fair had put against the city. However, the lawsuit is still moving forward against the remaining parties involved. Now, something that I did want to add is that I'm in no way trying to make it seem like Fair is like an innocent person that was like, I don't know, like had his reputation ruined, etc. Because at the end of the day, he was convicted for raping someone. And as I mentioned, that victim stands by her statements to this day and says, yes, this man assaulted me. This man is not a good person. So it's not like he was just like a completely innocent person. Like he did have a history of doing something bad and just because he was found not guilty for arpana's case doesn't mean that he's not guilty of doing everything else he's done in the past so people can believe that fair was innocent in arpana's case but there's really no reason to downplay someone else's trauma and everything else that the other victim went through in a recent interview that leslie did for the suspect podcast she says that she wonders if fair did do it and if arpana's death was her fault because she brought fair there that weekend she wonders if she had never invited fair if arpana would still be alive the prosecutors in both trials said that it would be hard to ever try someone in Arpana's case again because the evidence against Fair would cause doubt and they would have to explain why they tried someone else, but we're now saying that it was a different person, which is just really sad. I mean, the fact that it seems like this case will most likely never be solved is just so upsetting. It breaks my heart for Arpana's family who to this day are still looking for justice and looking for answers. I can't even imagine what her family has been through throughout all of these years. I mean, going through two trials, going through a hung jury, going through a not guilty verdict. I mean, it must have been so hard for them. And again, the family is back in India. So I just, I don't know, my heart breaks for them. And I just wish that this had a better ending and that Arpana had justice. You know, she was such a young girl. She was only 24 years old, you guys. She had so many dreams ahead of her. And I'm sure that she would have accomplished so much and would have had such a successful career as well as such a great personal life. So the fact that someone did this to her and took her life in such a brutal way is so disturbing. And it's just even more disturbing knowing that this guy or persons are most likely going to get away with this. Now, real quick before we end the video, I just wanna go over some unanswered questions in this case that people just wonder about. For example, who was standing in Arpana's doorway? Again, the neighbor would have recognized if it was Cameron standing in the doorway since everyone pretty much knew each other in the building. But since he couldn't really pinpoint that it was him, who was this person? And was it even related to Arpana's death? Because again, records show that someone was on her computer at 3.29 in the morning. Was it her on the computer or was it someone else? Now, the timeline of things is also just very confusing. Cameron and Kyle heard moaning at around three o'clock in the morning, but again, records show that Arpana or someone was on her computer at 3.29 in the morning. So it seems safe to assume that the person who did this went over to her apartment at that time. Now, we know that Arpana put up a fight, so why didn't her neighbors hear this struggle? That part to me is just so confusing. Like, no one heard her yelling for help, fighting, struggling, or just even heard someone break down the door. Another confusing factor is why did Cameron call Arpana at 10 o'clock in the morning on Saturday? I mean, was it something to just kind of like help with his alibi of like, oh, I don't know, I called her just to see where she was and she didn't answer? Or why did he do that? Going back to the condom that was found in Leslie's apartment, I wonder if she ever questioned Fair about this condom. You know, did she ask him? 
did you have sex with someone that night who was this person because again the rape kit for arpana came back negative meaning that whoever did this to her used a condom well there was a condom wrapper found where fair was staying so it just seems like that might have some type of connection to this day arpana's id phone and camera have never been found who took the items and where are they now? And why did they take them? A lot of people feel like maybe there were text messages on there that could have been incriminating or maybe on the camera she had been taking photos that night of the Halloween party. Maybe she took a selfie with the killer and she didn't even know it was her killer. So that could be why these items were stolen. As for what happened to Arpana's body, her body was flown back to India on November 9th. Jay, who was the family friend that found her body, accompanied her body and brought it back to her family. Arpana's dad had gotten an emergency visa from the U.S. consulate in Chennai, but decided against going to the U.S. after Jay assured him that he'll bring Arpana home. On November 10th, Arpana's body was brought to a community center in OU Colony, where her parents lived. The community center had put together a touching display of her photographs depicting her life and all the awards that she had won over the years. After her friends and family had paid their respects, Arpana's body was taken to a burial ground near Whisper Valley, Julebee Hills, and laid to rest. Arpana's sister, Pavitra, has followed in Arpana's footsteps and became a computer engineer herself. Arpana's family was reassured by U.S. authorities that her killer would be caught, but after 15 years, the case still remains unsolved. When asked to express his feelings, Arpana's dad said that the only thing he knows is that his daughter is now gone from his life forever. But all right, you guys, that is pretty much all the information I have for today's video. As I mentioned, I wish that this had a better ending and I just wish that there was some type of justice for Arpana. But all we can do is continue to share the story, spread awareness, and just hope that someday she does get justice. Thank you guys so much for being here and for taking the time to listen to what happened to Arpana. If you're part of the hashtag Audio Familia, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you do go watch the video version later on my channel, make sure to leave me a comment down below letting me know that you're from the hashtag Audio Familia. And if there's ever any other cases you would like me to cover, also leave me a comment under my YouTube video or send me a message on Instagram. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review what happened wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to my channel, True Crime Jackie, on YouTube for full video episodes. You can also find me on Instagram and on TikTok at True Crime Jackie. Bye, guys.